She's alive. Alive! Frankenstein. Episode 136 is about time travel. It's entitled Peaches Laverne and it concerns a journey back in time to the summer of 42 to a little place in Southern California known as Laverne, where there was at that time a Church of the Brethren small college entitled Laverne College, and where there is now still its descendant, the University of Laverne, inflated titles of the present day. Now, my question for you is, if you could choose any time in history, any point in history, any context in history, any moment in history to which to travel, where would you go? My mother used to say, and to me it was very impressive, even as a child, I've never forgotten it. She said that if there were any moment in history to which she would like to travel, if she could, it would be back to the Sermon on the Mount, to sit at the feet of Christ during the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that was something. But a lot of us have um, other perhaps less lofty destinations. Mine would be, without a question, the set of The Bride of Frankenstein, when James Whale was directing Ernest Thesiger, Colin Clive, Elsa Lanchester, and above all, Boris Karloff in 1935, and that tremendous work of Depression-era art. The Bride of Frankenstein at Universal. I would do anything to be in that set. The Bride of Frankenstein. But you have your own. More recently, however, I came upon an episode in, you might call it, modern religious history, which I didn't know anything about. I had heard it referred to, but only through the reading that I've done in the last couple of years, but I never really knew about it. And I had read a kind of fictionalized account of it in Christopher <coughs> Isherwood's novel, Down There on a Visit, the long short story which concludes that novel, entitled Paul. But because I've been uh, reading as thoroughly as I can, Isherwood's Diaries, Volume 1, 1939 to 1960, which are edited and introduced wonderfully by Catherine Bucknell, I now had the chance to read the full thing. And the event known as the Laverne Seminar, which was a meeting of religious people, which I'll describe, at the girls' dormitory in summertime in late July and early August of 1941 in the small town of Laverne in what was then Citrus Country uh, near Los Angeles. This event seems to me so persuasive 
and so credible, partly because it's described by a man who is so credible, because he's so in touch with himself, and during the course of the seminar he becomes even more in touch with himself, and because he's so perceptive by God's given talent, and he writes so well, and because the event itself was so really um, synthetic, that that is the place I would like to go back after, or in second place, or in second rank, to the uh, filming of The Bride of Frankenstein. Now, you obviously want to go back and to the filming of Ghost of Frankenstein in 1941, <clears throat> which was probably filmed right around the same time as, as, uh, as this. But you're entitled, you know, everybody's entitled. Now, the Laverne Seminar is uh, memorialized and described in real um, detail on pages 161 to 180. And this uh, section, about 20 pages uh, in the July Diaries of Isherwood, is so good. I recommend you go, go to the library and find this book because it is a kind of um, noble distillation of everything that ought to happen, you might say, on a religious retreat. If you've ever been on a religious retreat or a parish weekend or a cursia weekend or any kind of trace de us or um, you name it, or a corporate weekend or an Earhart Seminar training weekend, or uh, I'm kidding, but you know what I'm saying. Any kind of retreat experience, uh, monastic retreat, lay-led retreat, clergy retreat, you name it, you'll, uh, you've been going to find something that the participants in the Laverne Seminar in 1941 actually found. And they found it partly because they were on solid ground, uh, you might say spiritually, and also because they had great people there, which is the essence of it, and finally because it was described by a man of such um, insight, and as I said before, diagnostic wisdom coupled with kind of an amazing love. This is also the high point, together with his time among the Quakers in Haverford, Pennsylvania, of the diaries, as I see it, because this is the most focused section, and you see, in a way, a struggling person seeking to integrate his private, normal, natural life with his also very deeply normal understanding of the life of the Spirit. And at this one point, uh, Isherwood seems to bring it together, um, albeit with humor. Now, let me say a little bit about it. There were two aims of this conference. I'll read it here. The Laverne Seminar began on July the 7th. It had been organized, to misuse a verb, by the Friends Service Committee, the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee, which I'm sure you've encountered. And uh, he writes, uh, Isherwood does, and I won't give you now more citations. Just trust me, it's between 161 and 180 of the book. Gerald approached the seminar with one quite clear objective. He wanted to see how far he could go along with the Society of Friends. In his books, he had referred to the Society of Friends as the one hope of spiritual regeneration within the Christian church. But Gerald had also criticized its complacency, its possessions, its puritanism, its lack of serious interest in the techniques of prayer, its generally happy-go-lucky approach to the spiritual life. And Gerald was, of course, entirely opposed to the theory of social service as an end in itself. He said that social work is purely symbolic. It helps the doer spiritually, but its material consequences cannot possibly be foreseen. Well, what you have to um, realize this is a very um, uh, uh, re re remedial uh, or therapeutic um, notion for us, because on the one hand, <clears throat> those who have been disillusioned by Christianity, as Gerald heard, the son of a low church uh, Church of England clergyman of Anglo-Irish descent, heard was, like so many of us, trying to find the shreds and patches of something real, truthful, credible, and persuasive, and, and maybe even deep 
within Christianity, because that's the context in which he'd grown up, and he had great admiration for the central insights, uh, the reconciliation of opposites in the forgiveness of sins, for example, that he saw in Christ and the um, understanding of the death of the self and the new birth, which he saw in the New Testament. And he was so, he was trying to find um, a kind of a, a way to be a Christian while having been disillusioned so thoroughly with um, so many aspects of institutional Christianity. Boy, you can understand that. Now, on the other hand, the Quakers, who were the sort of seat of a kind of liberal Christianity, to use uh, a technical phrase, I mean that in the theological sense, they were beginning to burn out. <clears throat> they had gone hook, line, and sinker into the uh, area of... Um, of social service, but they didn't have enough going cooking underneath to motivate them. So they were they were tiring. They were exhausted. I remember a <clears throat> woman in uh, near us in Scarborough who attended a church. I think it was down possibly in Hastings. Uh, Might have been Ardsley, but she liberal Protestant church. And the pastor of this church was always telling everybody, you know, these so-called rich Westchester people, quote end of quote. He pigeonholed his congregation and therefore missed them completely. He made them all feel guilty that they weren't doing enough to help the poor. But instead of motivating them to do it uh, spiritually, they all became burned out and exhausted and finally just stopped attending church. Because as she said, I, I come home so guilty and so criticized and so under judgment that I, I can't even cook, cook lunch. And um, so uh, the Quakers themselves were coming to a kind of impasse of, of lack of, of resources inwardly. So they thought that maybe Gerald Hurd and co, Isherwood and his pal Denny, who was with him, and uh, others who were in the group from California might be able to provide the missing link of internal motive that they were missing and for which reason they were exhausted back in uh, Philadelphia. So you can see what a terrific thing it is. Now what happens is that you, you there are two parts of this uh, short uh, reading that I'm giving, my text you might say. First, Isherwood's very um, astounding uh, understandings of the various personnel involved in the conference. He describes each one of them, lay, ordained, the whole business. And really, there's only one who's wanting to be ordained, and he's an Anglo-Catholic Episcopalian. But all the rest are sort of lay Quakers and lay mystics. And he describes each one, but he describes them with incredible perceptiveness and honesty, with all their warts, but also with great compassion and love. And right off the bat, you have a master who describes all the people he's describing with accuracy and yet love. You know, I always used to say in marriage sermons, you can, if you know somebody, you probably can't really love them. And if you love them, you probably don't really know them because the two are, you know, loving and knowing. What do we say? To know all is to forgive all. But um, if you really know a person, it's hard to love them because you can't abstract. And if you really love them, it's highly unlikely that you really know them in full. But the greatest thing is to be able to know and to love at the same time. Gleichzeitig. And that's what Isherwood manages somehow rather nobly, in my opinion. And partly, I think that's because he was in a very grounded place, as we say today. When he went to the Laverne Seminar, he'd been with, you know, in his center on Ivar Avenue, Hollywood, and he'd gotten something really grounded from the Swami Prabhavananda there. And so he was coming to it from a place of both insight and truthfulness and compassion and love. And it shows in every description. Here's an example. He's describing Alan Hunter, who was a congregational minister, who was kind of a focus for the Christian mystical group in Southern California. Alan was a fearless pacifist, he writes, and champion of racial minorities, and he often shocked his parishioners to the edge of revolt. But he was personally very popular with them because he worked so hard and was so friendly and helpful. His home stood wide open to the world like a club room 
Danny, this is uh, Isherwood's pal, found Alan's boyish gaiety irritating, but it wasn't facile. Nature delighted him. He was a passionate naturalist. Now, you see, this man is a bit of a, you know, an overenthusiastic, florid sort of, you know, Pollyanna, but it's not facile. It's come out of somewhere. And Isherwood sensed that. Listen to this description of uh, Elizabeth Hunter, Alan Hunter's wife. Elizabeth Hunter was at first sight a common type of minister's wife at first sight, a large, gray-haired, sweet-faced woman with a quiet voice. But her eyes, when you looked into them, were disconcertingly mature, wise and sad. She drew deep experience from her prayer life. Gerald thought she was a natural contemplative. She spoke little unless questioned, and her answers were well considered. Spiritually, she was the most adult member of the group. Gerald not accepted. Oh, my gosh. Now, um... Um, I've told you about Gerald's ideas, but now he begins to describe, Isherwood does, the various Quakers who'd come from the East. Harold, for example, Harold Chance, had come to Laverne, Laverne, in a bona fide mood of inquiry. He really wanted to know if Gerald had anything to offer which could help him. Now, uh, listen to uh, this, among many other descriptions, some of which are quite damning, but touchingly damning. He describes a fellow named Pat Lloyd, who's a... Uh, uh, sort of a big gun for some reason, and he said he had a big reputation as a conference buster and spiritual prima donna. Now, Pat Lloyd, it turns out, had had an alarming and extraordinarily dramatic experience in the U.S. Army during World War uh, I and um, had almost been shot (coughs) for for cowardice, but it wasn't cowardice. It was principled Christian pacifism. But listen to what he says about... um, Pat. Pat was dark and handsome in a kind of mincing way, despite his large middle-aged stomach. His greatest problem, he told us, was his sex. And then he describes a counseling situation he had with a young man who was having a sexual problem, as he thought. And Pat um, uh, describes it and invokes Jesus Christ as part of the answer to this man's sexual problem. And then, uh, this is what Isherwood says, listen to this. Pat was the kind of character who would send the average novelist like me into paroxysms of scorn and hate at this hypocritical, sublimated satyr whose jaws dripped with honey. But if you were a little less queasy and could dig down through layers of spiritual marshmallow, you would find someone very different, quite austere, genuinely kind, fearless, and deeply understanding. Pat was probably one of the very few Quakers who really had spiritual discernment, coupled with absolutely disinterested goodness. He was still capable of an entirely unselfish, heroic act. Well, now, you see what's happening there is that uh, Isherwood is describing the depth of the man in a loving and compassionate and actually very admiring way. He's gotten, because he's, he's, he's so well-grounded himself and he's not pigeonholing or caricaturing, as he says, his word is, uh, if you were a little less queasy. In other words, he's not being put off by the superficial uh, apparent hypocrisy of the man and getting down to something quite fine. And that's the essence of this uh, little bit of spiritual biography. It is so good because he uh, constantly gets down to the roots. You might call it an exercise, an imputation uh, of a very, very subtle and deep form. Here's another phrase. He's describing a 
woman, a Quaker woman, Rachel Davis Dubois, who, or Dubois, but I think it's Dubois, who comes uh, and organizes the talent shows and has everybody doing Highland Reels and <clears throat> then uh, Buddhist uh, poems, psalms and uh, all these sorts of things and has a kind of a frenzied uh, kind of a, you know, a gale storm sort of thing going on here. But this is, uh, uh, he, he describes the talent show they had at the retreat. This helped, no doubt, to produce surface results and moments of warmth resembling the friendliness of drunks. Well, you know, I've been at so many retreats, especially um, uh, Curcio retreats, actually, when you would see 45-year-old uh, men and women um, uh, having a kind of a bonhomie, which was very sincerely felt, but sort of never lasted when you came down from the mountain. And I realized uh, I've been to about 10 of these, uh, maybe 12, maybe 15, and uh, these particular kinds of weekends. And I believe in them in many ways, but... She produced moments of warmth resembling the friendliness of drunks. Oh, my gosh. Well, just a few other um, uh, passages. What begins to happen is that uh, uh, Isherwood unconsciously or naturally or without any kind of um, artificiality, as it seems, uh, begins to examine himself. Not only does he see others, as you might say God sees them, but he begins to... um, to see that everything he's doing is coming from the wrong place. He begins to, in this context of, you might say, unforced repentance, or let's just say honesty or self-knowledge, he begins to see all sorts of things in himself that need attention. And so it becomes a kind of bracing or um, surgical study of his own motivations in relation to different actions. For example, he says, I, I find now, this is July 15th, every instant must be intently observed For example, my annoyance when Felix used the downstairs bath. My anxiety when he seemed about to ask to borrow my car. My aversion to Bill Rahill's mannerisms when reading aloud. My vanity displayed in talk with Alan and Eugene Xman after breakfast in the park. I find I I, uh, want to walk across to the drugstore, ostensibly to buy something, but actually to read the headlines. Every time I return from the drugstore, I return tense and restless. Well, that's the 1941 equivalent of reading your your inbox on your iPhone about whatever emails you've received at nighttime. I, the other day, I found myself at 2 o'clock in the morning lying in bed, and there was Mary trying to sleep. And I just had the bright idea of seeing if I'd gotten any emails, you know, maybe from overseas, uh, checking my mail on my iPhone at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's the same thing. Walking, I, I, I would never have acknowledged it. I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't been asleep, you might say. But she noticed. Walk, because everybody everybody notices. I, I'm walking across to the drugstore ostensibly to buy something, but actually to read the headlines. And this becomes uh, his uh, um, its great uh, problem. He says, I, then on July the 19th, I went over to the drugstore to read the headlines. This is about the invasion of Crete by the Germans or this, that, or the other thing. I read the headlines at the drugstore, usual pointless despair. Now, um, this is really uh, very um, powerful. And uh, he uh, completely, uh, he comes up uh, with something even religiously very convincing. Then I thought, this is on uh, July the 29th, I thought how if this force, capital F, which is behind all life, could ever become the consciously controlling factor in myself, if I could ever surrender myself to it completely and fearlessly, then my life would become the most amazing adventure. Every moment would be incalculably strange and new, because then everything would be possible. There would be no limitations, no habit patterns. In fact, it wouldn't be my life anymore. I should be an instrument, absolutely dedicated absolutely safe in the worker's hand. Well, this is, uh, this is, you might, I call it the voice of true religion. 
Um, listen to this, uh, just one other thing. Uh, he records from uh, Gerald uh, Hurd's talk, which is on the 1st of August, 1941, at Laverne. They're sitting around, and Gerald says this, We can judge nobody. Life is sailed under a sealed handicap. Now, if you could only look at people yourself, but from yourself, you know this is true. Look at everyone else with whom you have to deal and realize that they're sailing under a sealed handicap. Well, um, I want to finish. Uh, the power of the passage between pages 161 and 180 of the diaries, which are now in paperback, by the way, um, I think it was 1996 that they were uh, published, uh, 1997. The um, power of this uh, uh, inspired uh, what the Germans call a protocol. That is, it's the minutes. You might almost, it's a combination of the minutes, the reflections, and the events of uh, three weeks uh, in the summer of 42. Da 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 da. That's actually a love story. I always get it wrong. The theme of da 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 da. No, I think that's Romeo and Juliet. Can you tell me? I'm sure we can look it up. The theme of the summer of 1942, but we're talking about really the summer of 1941, when before Pearl Harbor, when this extraordinary event to which I would like to take George Powell's time machine and travel back. What do we see? Well, we see first that. Uh, there is possible in the life of the spirit <clears throat> that view of a human being, ourselves from the standpoint of God, and then others from the standpoint of ourselves, which both sees the truth and doesn't hide or deny, and at the same time is able to love because you see sort of the deeper thing that is trying to work itself out, the the sealed handicap, and that is an insight which is uh, uh, just money can't buy, and it's precious. It's sort of infinitely precious. More to be desired than fine gold, yea, than much fine gold. Psalm 19, I sung that in the old days at meetings very similar to the Laverne Seminar. Now, there you have it. And secondly, the longer you're in an environment of this kind of discerning love, discernment with love or love with discernment, you then find that your own resistances to your own self-denials come down and you begin to see yourself as you are. At one point... Um, Isherwood uh, moves so as not to be the Venetian blinds in the room where they meditate. Uh, the sun is coming in at the wrong angle and is blinding him. So he moves to another place to meditate. But then he feels guilty because he realizes immediately, well, it's a small room and someone will have to sit in the place that I've just vacated. So yes, I serve myself by getting out of that bright light. But I made it so somebody else had to get in that bright light. And he sees exactly what he was doing. He's using these little things to hide deeper motivations of conscious, habituated, and un, un, I'm sorry, unconscious, but habitual uh, self-absorption and selfishness. And who in the world isn't like that? So he, in fact, becomes a really um, much holier and uh, powerfully, um, really amazing human being. At one point when Denny uh, goes off on a, the train, or maybe it's Paul, I can't remember who it is, but some, I think it's Denny, goes off on the train when later on he's in Haverford, PA, and one of his friends, uh, who's really sour and difficult and cynical and mean and not nice. And Isherwood actually has the guts to say to him, whoever it is, he says, you know, I just don't like being with you anymore. You are so negative and you're so mean. And don't you realize that you're damaging yourself? You're adding to the larger store of ill will in this world. And it's probably true that you personally are prolonging the war. What a thing to say to an old friend. But what a, what a, when you read it, you said, you know, that's true. I mean, we all are prolonging the war. So a combination of this deep, uncontrived, and unfacile um, 
self-confession knowledge, and which ultimately leads to always to change when you see yourself as you are, coupled with this extraordinary uh, compassion on the other people. You see it in the diary. You almost see the progression from understanding a guy like Pat Lloyd with his syrupy piety, uh, which actually hides a truly courageous great heart, and then Isherwood's own understanding of himself. That's the nature of religion. That is the true nature of religion. And I, uh, the religion at its best is always something along these lines. And I leave that with you as an example. And I conclude with a song that was uh, released in 1970 after Diana Ross had left this very wonderful group. And, uh, of course, at the time it made, of course, why do I say that? At the time, this particular song made a huge impression on me because it connected with my own personal experience. But it's also a song about a religious retreat. It's a song about the connection between human love and the divine geographically and in terms of spatial combinations expressed. And I leave you with this one song which sums it all up in a way. Up the ladder to the roof. Thank you so much and God bless. Baby